0: I'm Emily Hawthorne, a Middle East and North Africa analyst at Stratfor, and this podcast is brought to you by Stratfor Worldview, our premier digital publication for objective geopolitical intelligence and analyses. Individual, team, and enterprise memberships are available at worldview.stratfor.com slash subscribe.
1: The complexities of today's foreign policy and national security world are mind-boggling and something that you would have to take into account if you were going to try and do the same kind of Condor story that I was able to, to work with back in. I They were not the good old days. They were the Cold War days.
0: Welcome to the Stratfor Podcast. I'm Faisal Purves. James Grady. Say that name again. James Grady. Does it ring a bell? James Grady is something of an American icon, an investigative journalist whose first book is more famous than any of the more than a dozen that followed. James Grady wrote Six Days of the Condor in 1974, a spy thriller based in Washington, D.C. That book was made into a movie the next year. That Oscar-nominated movie made the book famous, and the rest, as they say, is history. Today, James Grady and Fred Burton chat about that book, the movie, the bad old days of the Cold War, and frankly, when truth is stranger than fiction. Hi, I'm Fred Burton here
2: today with James Grady, who in 1974 wrote Six Days of the Condor, which was his first novel. James, thank you for being with Stratfor Talks today.
1: It's my pleasure. It's uh, it's an honor to be here.
2: James, uh, rare does a book take off like yours did. Uh, I vividly recall when the book came out growing up in the D.C. area. And I must say that uh, I have probably read Six Days of the Condor at least a half a dozen times.
1: That's very kind.
2: And I know the book was put into a movie called Three Days of the Condor. And I'd love for you to explain to our audience uh, who was involved in that film.
1: The film really had two major driving forces. One was its director, Sidney Pollock, But Robert Redford... Uh, who was the star really takes a hand in making sure that whatever movie he is in meets a certain level of high quality. I think he's not unusual in that respect, but he's more successful than a lot of actors. One of the things that they faced was as they were writing their screenplay, American politics and global politics was undergoing an incredible rapid rate of change, with the increasingly dominating role of the Watergate crisis, and the agony of what would what would eventually become the last year and a half of the Vietnam War. Plus, we just had gone through the you know the the Munich massacres in in seventy two at, at the Olympic Games. So there was. All the old rules and all the old standards were shaken and not really applicable to, to what was going on as they made that movie.
2: When you were putting together the character, the Condor, how talented he was, this is a guy thrown into a situation where he comes back from going out to lunch and he finds all his co-workers murdered. How did you come up with uh, that storyline?
1: Well, it, it actually struck me one day as I was a uh, college undergraduate walking to an internship I was lucky to get on Capitol Hill, and I kept passing uh, a house with a, a brass plaque that sounded phony. It was actually the American Historical Association, a completely reputable group. No one ever came in or out that I saw, so I was immediately struck with two thoughts, one what if it were a CIA front, which in that era was just beginning to emerge as a possibility? And two, what if I came back from getting lunch for people and found that they'd all been murdered? Those two thoughts haunted me for several years until I was finally able to write the book in really nineteen late 1973. And in
2: 1975, one year after you put this book together, the KGB which at the time is Ruthless Intelligence Service, they get their hands on a copy of the movie, and they decide that they're going to stand up a unit to do what was depicted in your story. What was your reaction when you learned of that?
1: I didn't find out about it until Peter Ely uh, broke the story, I think about 15 years ago now. And I remember I was standing outside in my driveway at night holding the phone that my wife had raced out of the house to give me because I was walking the dog. And I'm listening to the questions from the Washington Post reporter and actually former intelligence operative, Jeff Stein. And he's telling me this story and asking me. And all I could think about was, I am in some sort of movie myself, that it was a halluc- <laughs> it was it felt like a hallucination if if is the only way i can can describe it that you know interest from the kgb is is really i think more about how we start how we look for what to do next creatively i mean at least yeah, i i don't have, i i am hesitant to sing the praises of the kgb which were they were ruthless. It's, it's, You cannot overstate that. But they were trying a few more creative things, uh, trying to break away from the communist ideology lockstep management program.
2: To me, just having lived in that world for many years uh, as a special agent, uh, to think that if you think through this process, James, uh, the, the KGB probably reads your book. They watch the movie with Robert Redford. Then they create this secret two thousand man division that your book basically creates in a fiction narrative and they stand it up in reality to do exactly what the condor was doing in your book.
1: Exactly. And they even they even copied the the design of the outside of the building right down to a a phony brass plaque <laughs> inside the front door. <laughs> it it, it, it's, it was it was mind-boggling to 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 learn these things and i you know i still every now and then wake up and shake my head i i guess i gave 2000 people jobs in uh, in russia <laughs>
2: have have you ever visited moscow and hunted down that building
1: i have never gone to russia part of that is uh, reluctance and part of that is i'm i'm not a big fan of travel but i you know it was it was funny the kgb's relationship to to condor i knew right after the berlin wall fell and there was that very brief period when there was an open flow and there were several kgb agents who uh, i met with one night here in washington and they told me that one of the things they used to do to get out of extra work in their training academy was They would say to their instructors, we need to practice our English, so we're going to watch Three Days of the Condor again.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That's a great story. Oh, Uh, Yeah, you can't make this stuff up. Uh, Another thing that intrigued me as I was doing preparation for this, James, is uh, our paths crossed a little bit, uh, and the book Six Days of the Condor may also be involved in some capacity – with the assassination of a Iranian exile in Bethesda, Maryland, in 1980, can you talk us through that?
1: Sure. Uh, you you must remember that this was the time when the Iranian government was in in tremendous flux. They hired an American to kill Iran's former ambassador, and he got his method. I would argue from watching the mailman assassin who I had created in the book and and in the movie. Now, I I have to tell you, he denies this or is very cagey about it. I, for another work of fiction with a great deal of care, was in contact with him about 12 years ago via email. He's a fugitive in Tehran, federal fugitive, wanted for murder. He's also done other things, I believe. Uh, and he said well maybe I did get it from you maybe I did it I don't know but the 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 technique that he used was so like what I did it was called among federal law enforcement officials the Condor assassination
2: <laughs> I'll tell you my role in that I was uh, working on at the rescue squad the day that that individual was shot and killed, and I actually responded to the house and transported the victim to the hospital. Wow. The the killer uh, was David Belfield, and I, right. I, I know he changed his name later after he fled the United States, but when I was a special agent with the counterterrorism division in the State Department, that was one of those kinds of cases that we always had on our radar, and we would sit around and dissect how that occurred because the MO was brilliant. And James, when I was reading the book again, I love this quote where it says, I'm not a field agent, I just read books. And I was picturing you having been fortunate of putting together a few of my own books, uh, thinking about how you came up with a line such as that. Talk me through how you how you worked in nineteen seventy 273 to put this story together
1: remember that was also the era of James Bond who is a hero you know he could he could drive a car a hundred miles an hour and make a 50 yard shot with a automatic and hit the bull'seye and seduce Ursula Andress and and have a look great in a tuxedo all in the same 15 minutes I never knew anybody like that Fred I I <laughs> When I
2: became a special agent I thought we were going to be like that. Boy, I was in for a, a rude awakening.
1: Yeah. And I I didn't want to I didn't want to create a character who was that kind of person. I wanted to create a character who the average American citizen in in the streets could identify with. So I was very careful to limit what he could do. I Sort of made a informal rule for myself that my Condor character could do nothing that I couldn't physically do if I were pushed to a limit. Uh, I having run out of breath, I having miss his only good <laughs> shot. To me, one of the important things about fiction, especially I would argue when we're talking about terrorism and espionage, is that you have to make it relatable to the reader, to the average reader, for it to have an impact beyond mere entertainment. I mean, I still love the the James Bond movies and books, but really, when I walk out of the theater or when I close the book, I know that I've seen a fantasy.
0: If you would like to learn more about Six Days of the Condor or the film Three Days of the Condor, there'll be details in our show notes. Although the tension in those narratives are fiction, as you heard, during the Cold War, the tension in Washington was almost palpable. Navigating the intricacies of politics, place, people, and geopolitics takes an expert guide. Stratfor is that guide, for businesses and professionals. We help you stay one step ahead of developments that could affect your business, or help you climb to the next rung of the ladder. If you're not already a Stratfor member, you can learn more at stratfor.com slash enterprise. Now, let's get back to Fred Burton and James Grady.
2: When you're typing and putting this together, I assume, are you working on an old uh, royal typewriter or what were you doing at the time? How
1: did you guess? It was, <laughs> it was a secondhand royal typewriter. And I remember... The clunking it would make every time you you had to hit the return bar. Oh which yeah, is, you know it's something that most people today have never had to experience. I was just uh, so enthusiastic and thinking, thank God I don't have to write this by hand.
2: <laughs> you get this manuscript together, you mail it off to W. W. Norton, and and are you expecting to hear back, or or did you mail it anywhere else, or? Or did you, it, was this your only copy?
1: I had luckily found an office with a copier, what we used to call the Xerox machine, oh, giant yeah. machines. And they let me copy, I think it was two or three versions of it. And I had this list of publishers who would accept what they used to call unsolicited manuscripts. And I would... Dropped one at a time into the mail. Norton was my second shot. I was overjoyed when they took it. And it was uh, to think that doing that process today could take, you know, 15 or 20 seconds if you had the email address <laughs> uh, is mind boggling.
2: I read that you made a thousand dollars for selling the story.
1: <laughs> I thought that was the biggest payday I would ever get as a fiction author. <laughs> it was. And I, I, when they told me, I, I would have signed on for a dollar. <laughs> uh, and they also then, at one point during a very brief business conversation, said, Oh, and we think it could be a movie. And I am sitting in a reconverted garage that's an apartment, which is a very generous term in Missoula, Montana. And I'm thinking, those guys are crazy. Who would ever want to make a movie out of this? I was wrong, thank God.
2: <laughs> Very interesting. We have a lot of authors that listen to our podcast and a lot of folks that are trying to get published and putting books together. So these kinds of stories are just simply oh, great for our listeners to uh, to understand uh, the work and, and the effort that goes into these at times. When you look at some of the facts as I went through the story James, and you have Section 9, Department 17 at the CIA. Are these things that you just made up?
1: I had to. At the time, and this is again one of those things that some of our listeners may find hard to believe. At the time that I was writing Condor, there were only three, what I would call, reliable books about the CIA, and those were just glossed over. They had none of the detail that you can find in literally hundreds of books and and, and memoirs by agents such as yourself. So I had to think if I were going to create an intelligence agency, how would I do it and what would it look like? And I'd had a little experience with federal bureaucracies. So I just, I put my small experience with the bureaucracies we face every day into the fictional mindset of it's a spy agency. I knew it employed thousands of people. So I knew there had to be things like a janitor service and a personnel division and somebody to clean up in the cafeteria. And I just, I let this whole fictional world evolve, started giving it names. I did not know, for example, that what I called the panic line, the number that an agent would call in distress actually existed. But I thought, man, if I were running any kind of covert group, any kind of intelligence agency, I'd want to have a phone number that my people could call if they got in trouble.
2: Yeah, all the op centers uh and, and that's what uh uh is really difficult to think back when you look at this time period because You're putting this together in the days before a computer, before the internet, before cell phones, and uh, you can't research things so easily. And how did you pick Chevy Chase, Maryland, as one of the locations for your scenes? Uh, That's a location that I grew up in. And why Chevy Chase?
1: I think that came about purely by coincidence. When I had the undergraduate fellowship and I was working in the Senate, one of the people on the Senate staff who was actually, you know, like a legislative assistant or administrative assistant lived in Chevy Chase. And the name just... It's one of those names that once you hear it, you don't forget it. And of course, this was before a certain comedian made it famous for the same reasons. And it just Chevy Chase rolls off the tongue it's easy on the eyes and I thought well sure
2: absolutely and I know a lot of the old-time agency folks did live in the area you know growing up in that that area in the 60s and the 70s uh, you would be co-mingled down the street and and not know when you're going to high school that your buddy's dad worked for the agency it was just that generation
1: yeah it's hard to imagine how secretive our national security operation was. And I would argue for the most part had to be given, given the really aggressive nature of the, of the intelligence war we we had going on primarily with the Soviet Union, but also just a little bit with what we used to call communist China. Uh There were people I knew whose dads, when they were in high school, you may have even gone to to high school with them, who knew their dad worked for something like the CIA, but then dad would not be home for three and four months at a time. And when he did come back, nobody got to ask any questions. The world within the world of Washington, D.C. in that era was one of the things that fascinated me.
2: The timing of this book, Six Days of the Condor, when the world is really At the height of the Cold War, there's all kinds of chaos with the Nixon White House. You have Watergate. You have uh, the Vietnam War, James. And it's it's hard not to think about that in context with what's going on today with the geopolitics of the world. How do you think the condor or the story relates today?
1: Well, I think the story, which is essentially – it's a twofold story. One is a story of a – honest, loyal American public servant who suddenly finds himself rocketed into a world where he doesn't know who he can trust, where his life is most certainly in danger, and where he feels not only his conscience telling him to survive, but also to try and right what's gone wrong. I think that's out there and important, but also Today, we have a far more complex geopolitical scene than, than I was facing when I, when I worked on Condor. We don't have that split between just one us and them. Now it's us and them and those guys. And what about those other people? And oh, yeah, down there, you know, are, are they going to become a, a state level actor or are they going to remain a terrorist group? I mean, it's the complexities of today's foreign policy and national security world are are mind-boggling and something that you would have to take into account if you were going to try and do the same kind of condor story that I was able to to work with back in I, I they were not the good old days they were the cold war days
2: what's changed since that time period James if you look back on this from a society in general
1: well i think one of the things that has changed completely is that our society is so much more complex. And in a strange way, we're even more isolated than we were. Now it's, you, you go outside on any American street and stand for five minutes. Half the people will be walking by inside their cell phone screens. Uh, We've become more insulated. It's become even harder to separate conjecture from fact, from theory, from plausibility, from propaganda, from outright manipulation, uh, which is just the opposite of what people would have said when they the dawning of the information age, when computers first became something that everyone could spell, let alone bring into their own households. Uh, I think that those things are an incredible increase in complexity, but also there are more and different kinds of bad guys now and bad actors, as they, as they talk about it in diplomacy, than there ever have been. In part, that's due to the fragmentation of society. In part, it's due to they can get away with it. I mean, you, you're you know far more about Beirut than I do. I mean, I, I look at Beirut and before the bombing of the Marine Barracks over there, Beirut was sort of uh, almost a blueprint, I think, for the future of where we are going with competing terror groups who all hated the US but didn't trust each other combined with like other states in the region having to counter that combined with the US presidents and a and a and a local government I mean that kind of situation i am afraid is i don't think it will be duplicated i think that versions of it are out there already in existence. And those kinds of outside-of-the-box changes are, are something that I think is really hard for the average American to grasp. And it's for law enforcement and security forces, it is even, I, would say, I don't want to say more difficult, but it's, it's certainly more vexing.
2: So in 75, we have, uh, three days of the Condor. In 1978, you wrote Shadow of the Condor. Then it appears the Condor goes into retirement for a while and you bring him out of the cold after 9 11. Why did you decide to do that?
1: I was mad about 9 11. I'm sure almost everybody who's listening to you was also mad about 9 11. I was, I, I was upset. I, I felt like we were facing a whole new series of challenges. And one of the things that was in the back of my mind was I did not want us to repeat some of the mistakes of the past. I did not want us to approach this in a panic situation. I wanted, hopefully, to see a a rational, intelligent response. And I thought, you know, the vehicle I have to write about that Uh, about how we had to avoid corruption and ineptitude is Condor. And I I made a decision. I remember it was in the car driving to New York with my wife. And I made the decision somewhere before we got to, to the bridges into Manhattan that I had to bring Condor back to talk about our modern times.
2: 2014, Last Days of the Condor is optioned for a film by MGM, and in 2015, you have Next Day of the Condor. Then in 2018, AT&T Audience uh, airs a 10-episode
1: series on the Condor. How was that? The, the series on Condor is actually going into its second season of shooting, and um, I thought they did a a really remarkable job. They were incredibly faithful to the book for about the first, I would say, six episodes. And then they had their vision, what was going on in the world and what the problems were. And they went forward with that, which is what they would have had to do. I'm not quite sure where they're going to go with season two. The incredible good fortune, I feel, that I was able to create a character who is a vehicle that lets us talk about the kind of issues that you talk about all the time, Fred. You know, national security, um, intelligence, terrorism. How do we handle all this and keep a democracy going? That I was able to create a character who maybe in a small fictional way, It's not that he shines a light. It's almost that he, like, pushes his button on his cell phone and the flash goes off.
2: Did you ever think that here you are in this time period this many years later that we'd still be talking about The Condor?
1: Uh, It it never crossed my mind. I had faith that I had done a book that was – the word I think I would have used then is serviceable. It was fine. It would would stand – with uh, a number of other kinds of novels that were being published in that era, I knew I hadn't hit it out of the park like Charles McCary or John Le Carre, but I felt, you know, I was I was the younger generation, and, and perhaps this is the direction others would go. That it has survived all these years is is sort of beyond cosmic luck to me. I I feel that. Uh, I got lucky to be the one who found this story and helped bring it to life. And every day I wake up and and shake my head with wonder and awe.
2: Well, that's probably a good time for me to stop asking you questions right now, James. Thank you so much for being with uh, Stratford
1: Talks today. Thank you for having me, Fred. I really appreciate it.
0: Thanks for listening to today's podcast. We'll have links to James Grady's works, including Six Days of the Condor, in our show notes, along with more reading suggestions from worldview.stratfor.com. If you would like to know more about how Stratfor can help you monitor geopolitical risk, visit stratfor.com slash enterprise. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this podcast or ideas for future ones. Please leave a review on the Stratfor podcast page on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For more geopolitical intelligence and links to our content, follow us on Twitter at Stratfor, or check us out on LinkedIn. I'm Faisal Purves. Thanks for listening.